Hi, this is Lynette Nylander, host of NTS Radio's new podcast, Sounds and Style. Each week, I'll be chatting with some of culture's most influential figures, exploring how music and style links what we wear with who we are. Expect deep cuts into musical genres and fashion subcultures as my guests and I look at how the music they love has informed the work they make today. This season, I've been chatting with Lily Allen, Martine Rose, Mel Ottenberg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Don't Assume. I'm Zakia, and in this podcast, I'll be talking to pioneers, disruptors and innovators about their lives and music. In the 70s, the 80s, people didn't stand and look at the DJ like they do now. They looked at each other. They danced with each other. And this is something that is like really grotesque for me when I'm DJing and like everybody's staring at me because it's so counter to what the dance culture was really about. Today, I'm speaking with Terry Tamelitz, also known as DJ Sprinkles, on the line from her home in Japan. Growing up in rural Missouri, he moved to New York in 1986, where she started DJing in queer clubs like Sally's 2, and it benefits for direct action groups such as ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Since the mid-90s, he has been releasing genre-spanning music from deep house and ambient to stripped-back experimentalism via her label Comatones Recordings. His work as an artist, DJ, producer and public speaker takes a critical look at identity politics, gender, the music industry and at global capitalist structures. Tamelitz has artfully resisted categorization and has a deep commitment to artistic autonomy. All of this makes her a perfect subject for this Don't Assume interview. such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today and yeah really excited to hear all about your uh, wonderful journey in music to start off could you tell me where you are and like what you've been up to today well i've been based in japan for about 23 years now it was like a permanent relocation i spent the first 16 years or so uh in kanagawa like kawasaki city which is kind of everything between tokyo and yokohama is kawasaki and then now i live in Chiba Prefecture in a little town called Sakura that is a kind of rice production area. And I'm kind of in an old house on the edge of kilometers of rice fields. So right now they've just finished planting all the rice and the fields are wet. And so there's literally millions and millions of frogs going crazy outside my window right now. So hopefully it won't be too noisy (laughs) on your side. What's a typical day for you um, at the moment? Well, I'm a pretty private person, I guess you would say. You know, I'm not like a party person. I, I'm even though, like, of course, like uh, DJing is part of my work and stuff. But maybe because it is part of my work, you know, my private life is pretty, pretty calm and countryside style. I guess you know, I kind of grew up in the rural Midwest in the U.S. Although, like, I've spent you know 11 years in New York, four years in Oakland. 16 in Kawasaki. I kind of moved to the countryside for the typical reasons because it's cheap and larger, more space for for less money. But um, also having grown up in a rural environment, I kind of know how to to deal with it without it feeling isolated or whatever, you know. 
So tell me a little bit about your kind of early influences musically and, you know, you sort of describing growing up in this rural environment. What kind of music was there around you as a younger person? Well, there were kind of two things happening musically. The first was roller disco. So I was born in 68, so I grew up in the 70s. And also, like, my generation was part of this thing where, like, it was really big for parents to get their kids starting everything by the age of two, two and a half. So at two and a half, like I was starting snow skiing, ice skating, roller skating. They tried to get me to start violin as well, but but um, doing the Suzuki method. But I ended up just going to the trial thing. Of course, I didn't know what was going on. And I just remember standing in a room on a black box, holding a violin by its neck and the bow in the other hand and just screaming. <laughs> and they were like, okay, maybe bring him back in a couple of years. So um, not everything took. I loved roller skating. In elementary school, I was into the kind of, you know, disco dancing. And this was like an indoor rink that had like the disco lights and a DJ and everything. And that was probably like um, the best way that somebody who was still a young kid in elementary school could be exposed to like disco and dance music and things like that. And, and also a bit of the lights and all that sort of thing in childhood. And the other thing that was happening was kind of more of a cultural thing. I also wore glasses ever since I was a infant, big, thick Coke bottle glasses. And in that era, especially if you had glasses, that really was a kind of social death nail. And there was also a kind of gender side to it as well, because it's like you don't hit girls and you don't hit boys with glasses. So there was a kind of feminization that happened in relation to that. Plus, compound that with the fact that, like, I have a Spanish woman's name as my first, the spelling is T-E-R-R-E, and things like that. So there was also a kind of a lot of bullying and harassment stuff going on. So I started getting attracted to electronic music in elementary school as well, in part because it was something that was incredibly unpopular with the kids who were doing the bullying. You know, it was like a kind of counterpoint to the soundtrack of rock and roll and country music and stuff that was part of the bully culture. So yeah, between the roller disco and then the kind of getting into synthesizer like Gary Newman and stuff like that, that was kind of what was happening with me musically as a as a youth. Interesting that even from that sort of uh, from those early days that you sort of positioned yourself musically or aligned yourself with these sort of outsider sounds in a sense. I think it's what made sense, you know, and the attempts to align with things that weren't that also kind of failed. Like, I have a really distinct memory of when, I guess this would have been in the seventh grade, so 1979-80, I was in like a woodworking class, like shop class, and these other kids at the table that were just totally, you know, the kinds who like when the teacher left the room, they were pissing in the sink and that sort of stuff. They were talking about like the new Styx album, Pieces of Eight. And I was, and how they wanted to get it because of this song Renegade on it and stuff. And I was a Styx fan because Styx, although they were like complete American rock band, but they also had a lot of keyboards ranging from kind of Baroque organ solos to synthesizer like the synth solo in Come Sail Away, just that synth solo was like 
something I was really into, things like that. So I was like, oh, I actually, I have that album. And they were like, you know, no, you don't. Shut up and stuff. And then they ended, I ended up getting beaten up for having the album. And then that kind of being like a defamation of character of the band for me to have it. Oh, uh, that sort of thing. So it's just like, you know, there's no winning in those situations, you know. But, yeah. So when did you start making your own music? In terms of, like, making things for release, that would have been around 1991 is when I started recording, like, kind of having studio equipment and doing that sort of thing. My first release was a 12-inch that came out in 1993 that was called Comatones 000. But before that, though, I did, since I was a little kid, I was also into using tape recorders and making kind of a multi-track tapes. I figured out a way to do multi-tracking where I would, um, let's say, like keep repeating a phrase on a vinyl record and hitting pause and record, pause and record, pause and record to just create like a tape loop. Then I would put that into a little Walkman tape player and tape a microphone to the headphones so that the sound of the cassette tape was being played back into the microphone. Then I would hang that in front of the main stereo speaker and play another record on top of it. And so in that way, I was like kind of making these kind of multi-layer sound collage things. Sometimes they were trying to be hip-hop-ish, kind of rhythmically and stuff. And then other times they were just being kind of like more like music concrete or abstract kind of things and not really knowing what I was doing. So, But I had that kind of method for making tapes and I would like give them to friends or whatever, that sort of thing um, happening since I was a kid. And I think that, although I would categorize that as a different thing than when I started doing things for release and as work, I think there is something about that production technique that has carried over a lot into both my electroacoustic projects and also the DJ Sprinkles and Keishi and the dance stuff as well. That sort of collaging almost. Yeah, yeah. It was also a rejection, like I mentioned about the uh, violin stuff. I actually did end up being forced to play violin from like kindergarten through sixth grade. And... I never practiced. I never learned how to... I just, I just hated it. So I think it was also like, similar to my interest in electronic music, was a counterpoint to something else that was going on socially. I think that my interest in tape music and um, collage and that kind of um, what many people might refer to as a kind of more inauthentic type of production technique, something that was instantly about referentiality and inauthenticity, that was a rejection of like the violin lessons, you know, that was a rejection of, of that sort of stuff. Tell me about when you created the DJ Sprinkles moniker and, and why you did that. Well, DJ Sprinkles started in the late 80s. I kind of moved to New York in 1986 after graduating high school. I had managed to weasel my way into a kind of full scholarship program at the Cooper Union, which is like an art university in New York to study painting of all things. It was the kind of typical kind of queer migration story, you know, about like just fleeing the rural Midwest to go to the big city kind of thing, you know, the same thing as the Bronski beat song and stuff. And when I got to New York, of course, like New York was a place that actually had music culture, electronic music and dance music and stuff where my university was and also where I ended up living 
was also in the East Village where there were a lot of record stores and, of course, the DJ house scene was going on and stuff. There was also the kind of ambient, industrial ambient movement and things going on at that time. And so there were all kinds of record stores. My record collection just exploded. So my roommates at one point were just like, hey, this is taking up too much space. You either have to like do something with it or you need to get rid of them. I think they were putting the do something with it out there as just kind of like a courtesy. So, <laughs> you know, I, much to their chagrin, the next day I came back with a, a DJ mixer and some, some turntables and started started doing things with it. And I ended up kind of doing mixtapes for various groups, like kind of direct action groups that I was involved in at the time, uh, like ACT UP, the Age Coalition to Unleash Power. Then from doing those tapes, then I started doing DJing at Benefits as a result of doing those benefit DJ gigs, made one of my mixtapes and started bringing it around to different clubs. As a result, I got a residency at Sally's 2, which was like a the kind of infamous Midtown Manhattan sex worker transsexual club. So that kind of activist political element was there sort of at the very start of your DJing career, if you were sort of aligning with these organisations you were working with? Yeah, yeah. Sally's wasn't one of the clubs that we did a benefit at. But at first, you know, I was trying to DJ at some of the clubs that the benefits were done at. Eventually, I got fired from Sally's, too. I got fired from one of those clubs after one night, also for just not playing what people, you know, I, I wasn't playing like the typical wailing diva <laughs> vocal tracks. I was like playing this like, you know, back then, like probably 114 was like the beats per minute of a lot of North Jersey and Lower East Side, Deep House, and just instrumental stuff that when people wanted dead or alive or whatever, you know, that sort of stuff. You've been quite critical about this sort of sense of nostalgia that a lot of people have about that period of time, about that scene, the early house scene in New York. I mean, what was your experience of those clubs at that time? Well... I mean, just like with everything in life, you know, I think I've always kind of been a little bit at the periphery of things, even when I was somehow in the middle of it, you know, kind of a wallflower type. And also, I, I never did drugs. I never drank even till today and stuff. So it's like I also experienced all of that dead sober. Which makes a big difference. It makes such a big difference. And it also <laughs> makes things very dark because you're really you're not only participating, but you're also kind of witnessing, you know, what is happening with the people around you. You're seeing them as they enter into and come out of their different states of being and mind through chemicals and stuff like that. And also the the kind of drug scene at Sally's and things like that was also quite complicated because, you know, America doesn't have socialized health care, even today still. So when it came to the kind of trans scenes and stuff, you're dealing with a lot of people who had been kind of disowned by family, a lot of homeless street kids kind of trying to figure out if they wanted to transition or whatnot. And their access to those hormone therapies and things like that were also like from the same drug dealer that was selling the Coke and other stuff. And so it wasn't just like a, um, you know, recreational drug kind of, dealer thing going on it was like also like all this stuff connected to the transitioning culture and and as a result of the fact that most of the people there were 
struggling financially and stuff as well, then you also had like maybe one person would buy some hormones, but then they needed money. So they sold half to other people. So then that would mean they were deregulated. It would also mean the people who were buying it weren't getting enough. So they were deregulated. All these bodies, intergenerational deregulated body (laughs) scene. And that also had a deep impact on my own decisions as someone who does not kind of conform to gender norms in seeing a kind of intergenerational scene of like financial and social and emotional and hormonal kind of turmoil that the majority, overwhelming majority of people were experiencing that also kind of informed my own attempts to get through this world without those sorts of things. Yeah. Do you feel like the sort of DJs who are playing a lot of the music from this era now or, you know, producing music that's sort of derivative of it, do you feel like they have a sort of obligation or do you feel like they should sort of be conscious of these sort of darker elements of that period? Or, you know, do you think they should become conscious of it or can they just sort of play the music and get on with it? I don't really care, you know, <laughs> like in terms of like what other people like it, like I'm I'm not here to tell other people what they should do and what, you know, what they shouldn't do or anything. I know that the overwhelming majority of people don't need to care about it, you know, and that's what a lot of these issues are about. And I've always had a kind of awareness that not everything is for everyone. And that I think has kind of informed my anti-populist stance, you know, that's not about being against populism in an elitist ivory tower way, but the opposite of um, thinking about locality and specificity and what it is to be culturally minor and understand that the topics at hand, you know, a lot of these things, especially when it comes to things around gender and sexuality and stuff, things are kind of really convoluted and changing these days with social media and all that stuff. But, you know, by and large, historically speaking, these are issues that people deal with out of necessity. You know, I mean, it's it's things that, that you're exposed to. It's not like you make a choice to go into something. It's like you, it's, it's thrown on you, you know, um, like I was talking about with the glasses as a kid, right? So things are just kind of thrown on you. And I think for the people who don't experience those things, it makes sense that they wouldn't naturally have an exposure to that and then you so then you have the conundrum of okay well then do i just kind of want everybody to just act like a shit liberal and pretend they <laughs> they understand things that they really don't or would i rather want to interact with people in a more kind of sincere manner that although it might reflect uh, politics that are quite different from mine can allow for a different level of solidarity when thinking about things like social organizing and things like that, you know, actually finding the points of solidarity as opposed to a kind of social fawning and kind of focus on community building, you know, rather than, I mean, community in the way it's been twisted with time now and identity politics into something that is about a kind of shared conformity of experience, you know. I'm interested in in this sort of in in relation to the sort of extra musical accompaniments that you often include in your releases. So in in one sense, you're saying that you're kind of 
you don't mind what people do, but then you're, you're, there's also a real attention to detail and precision with the sort of liner notes and the text that you include in your musical releases. So th- it seems like there is a kind of a hope or an expectation that people will, um, you know, pay attention to these sort of other elements that surround the music, you know, the sort of the political, the, the gender, the, the racial, uh, um, capitalistic elements. Yeah. There is expectation, but the expectation is that they won't. <laughs> the expectation is that, you know, as a, like I'm coming from a more nihilistic stance, right? When I said earlier, uh, I don't know, maybe I said I don't care or whatever. I didn't mean it in the aloof way. I meant it in, in a way that, oh, actually, I care about these issues, but I would rather have people who arrive at those issues out of some sort of experience be dealing with them rather than doing some sort of weird political correctness thing about saying, hey, you should do this, you know, you should think about this. It is central to how I think about it. And I've made it a point to keep that part of it. And I understand that then a lot of people interpret that as an attempt to control things as opposed to simply document. You know, like I get a lot of email comments and things or also just like after DJ gigs comments from people they they feel like they have to say like oh well, you know like I'm I'm a straight white guy and so you know I don't know I, I don't you know I'm sorry I don't mean to be here but you know I really like that you know like Sally's itself was like such a scene of chaos you know you had like the transsexual sex workers who were primarily Latina and African-American and then you had the Johns who were just from everywhere and pretty much often straight identified guys who had families and stuff. However you identify and however you present, that in another way, like if you work with an understanding of closets rather than thinking always about pride and identity, if you really understand that most sex between two women and between two men happens between people who are not both out loud and proud and self-actualized, and it's usually at least one of them is in the closet, if not both. And what somebody tells me publicly and socially that they feel and believe in, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they're all about. You know, I mean, I also, that was also part of the queer scene in Missouri when I was young too. It's like, you know, the, the gay bar scene there was like, you know, it was like you'd go in and it'd be like two 60 year old farmer guys with wedding bands on kind of like sharing a drink before they had to go home, you know, and and whatever else before they went home to their wife and kids or something, you know, and like kind of Baptist evangelical rural South. I mean, so like that and Sally's, those sorts of contexts speak much more to my own experiences around these things as well. And that's kind of where my critiques of pride and all that stuff, and also kind of like why, what I've been trying to hint at by saying, oh, the question of whether people will, should or shouldn't focus on these issues is kind of to the side of the real point that that's just the reality that they won't, because that's not how what mm-hmm. the marketplace requires. It's not what mainstream society requires, you know. That's how you end up with my rant against Madonna that just still, you know, and the the whole Vogue thing where she took this very specific queer Latina African-American Vogue thing. And then she the lyrics to her song was, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, if you're a boy or a girl. It's like, no, it totally (laughs) matters. It totally matters. But if you want to market it and make it meaningful to people who don't deal with these issues, you got to say it doesn't matter. So that's that's life. Right. 
Well, I like this idea that you're putting the information out there and for those whom it is important and for those whom it resonates, they'll sort of, they'll find it and it will mean something to them. It doesn't have to be for everyone. Yeah, I call it the queer ratio in a lot of my writing and things like that. The fact that like even when addressing an LGBT crowd or whatever, the queer ratio is always going to be like around that 5 to 10% of people who kind of understand and are willing to get into this kind of closet side of things as opposed to everything else is all about identity pride and all this sort of stuff, right? So even within queer communities, the queer factor is going to be a subset of the larger LGBT audience and stuff. You're listening to Don't Assume with me, Zakia, and DJ Sprinkles. I wanted to ask you about sampling as a sort of another way that you're sort of bringing in these other ideas, other ways of thinking into into the music. And you've talked about sampling as being a kind of footnoting, creating different relationships between works, but not just sonically, but also kind of intellectually. Why is that important to you? Well, I think it's important in any sort of discourse to be able to make references. And we find that socially speaking, you know, for example, in writing, also in the visual arts, Warhol was kind of, and pop art was kind of the epitome of sampling in that sense, you know, like using um, corporate logos, newspapers, newspaper photographs and articles and reprinting those things. Any of these media is, I see it as discourse. And Culturally, though, when it comes to audio and music, the industries really rely on keeping music operating in a kind of non-discursive way, you know, like keeping it as something other than discourse, keeping it as all about affect and all about um, identity signifiers. And so if you're trying to actually use audio as a means of discourse and as a means of presenting analyses, audio sonic analyses, we should be able to uh, culturally produce these as sophisticated as text or visual or any other medium, but we don't. So for me, yeah, like the the idea of sampling, it's like an audio footnote. But of course, we can see that legally speaking, it's not only a social thing, but actually on the legal level, there are structures set in place that make it so that audio producers aren't able to make these kind of reference points that writers and other people are able to make in these other forms of analysis and discourse. So for me, that has also been part of demonstrating these limitations of music by kind of an audio as a format by working through these kinds of areas of the industry that are socially and legally very frustrating. I'm getting a real sense of these two almost, you know, polar opposite aspects of your of your work and, and your practice this very intellectual studious artistic um, element and then your sort of life as a as a touring dj that, do these worlds come together and you know are you able to convey some of these thoughts and beliefs in a danceable context unfortunately not i mean like what are the odds of trying to get people to functionally hear music in a different way than is the norm And also to do that while intoxicated (laughs) and under the influence of chemicals, right? I mean, like, you know, of course, like, it's not, it's not gonna... And to keep them dancing as well. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't really care about that so much, you know, that's kind of like, you know, 
that's why you kind of get paid in advance so you don't have to worry about if they dance or not but um i've been very open over the years that you know like uh i consider the audio things that i produce to be non-performative music but like you have to perform in order to sustain yourself economically so the djing is also an extension of that i mean it's something i do out of economic necessity and of course like when i'm being flown from Japan primarily to Europe in order to DJ in clubs and contexts that really have, you know, no connection to the types of clubs and scenes that I started out in in New York. Of course, it's a complete disconnect. And also, you know, at this point in history, we're talking about a genre of music that's like from like 1986 to 1992. I mean, I think for me, like house music was kind of over in 92, even though I know that market wise, the 93, 94, 95 was kind of when it actually started breaking out. Right. But like that commercial breakthrough was also something that was kind of, you know, after its death and as far as I'm concerned. So for me, like, I do see it as, like, going to a kind of Woodstock <laughs> festival or something. Like, it is that old. It is that out of date. And um, a lot of people don't carry that sense of how out of date it is, or they, they're in denial about it, or they want to keep it vibrant and blah, blah, blah. But... Um, with my Keishi project, you know, I, I wrote about how the dance floor is like a wake. And it's really like a wake for those who died during the peak of the AIDS HIV crisis and stuff. And the kind of memories, the kind of nostalgia and memories involved are not only those of, of the great old days, but also the it's, it's really about um, mourning and loss. And so that's kind of the types of things that are running through my head when I'm DJing and stuff. And of course, I do have sonic signifiers that will tie into those themes, but the, you know, whether they can be heard and understood and especially on some big club sound system, that's also not the best thing to be hearing spoken word on or things like that. You know what I mean? It's like things get lost. It's, it's not going to really get conveyed in the club. But later those people might be like, oh yeah, that what was that track? And then they might research it and then they might find a doorway into it that way. Also, I think, you know, the wonderful thing about music is that it, there are this, it's sort of subliminal. Things can find their way into people without them necessarily intellectually comprehending what they're hearing. I would agree. I, I think that that's a fundamental aspect of most media. I think that we are socially conditioned to experience music much more in that way than with other media. I would definitely agree to that. Also because I think the visual outweighs the oral in most situations. And I've certainly experienced that in my own productions with with video, like doing like the video components to audio albums and things like that. Like when you have the visual side, then that just kind of dominates. But I think if you're really just listening and you have that absence of visual stimuli and you're kind of forced to start using your mind in order to kind of construct that visualization, I think that that's a very intense psychological process. And I think it's also very cultic in a way. And it's so why we can get so um, passionate about the connection between identity and music. I don't know, maybe it's a little different these days, but where like everything is so commodified, but you know, like, especially when I was growing up, you know, like the kind of visual signifiers of like what your fashion was 
matched what music you listened to, matched your politics, matched or your lack thereof. Those connections, there was a real one-to-one ratio and connection between your kind of projected identity and the music you listen to. And now I think it is, especially, you know, with the internet and having access to so many different things, it really is a kind of shitstorm of influences that are like colliding with each other at the same time in a much more open way. I mean, like when I was growing up, like, you know, I was the new wave fag with into synth music, but also, like I said, like I, I liked sticks or some things like that. There were things that were kind of kept on the down low, you know, but I think these days everything is kind of conflated to a kind of uh, white noise level, just like internet search results or something where it all comes at you at once and you're kind of trying to have an identity-based connection of sorts to it at times, but also it's. I think it is a different intensity than when I was young. And that's because, again, like there's not so much urgency and necessity to have that link and to have that connection. Because there is so much more access to information these days. I'm curious to know what you think about, you know, because you talked about this sort of sense of house music dying a long a long time ago. And yet there is this sort of massive resurgence, of not, not only of house music from that era, but of, you know, the DJ as the icon, as the rock god. Um, and what you make of that culture. You know, I'm sure you've seen all the videos, of, you know, Tiesto and the like prancing around and all that sort of stuff. What do you feel about that? Well, you know, I think that there is something really political that happened uh, that that has led to the kind of death of the DJ as a counterpoint to um, rock and roll gesturing. And in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, DJ culture was something that was abandonment in many ways of ego and, and a kind of anonymity. I mean, everybody thinks about like, you know, like the kind of Grandmaster Flash or things like that that are about putting their name in the mix, all that. But mm-hmm. but actually, there was a, also a side to those very scenes where the DJ was willing to take a kind of backseat in an invisible <laughs> spot in the club scene in, in an out of sight location within the club. In the 70s, the 80s, people didn't stand and look at the DJ like they do now. They danced, they looked at each other. They danced with each other. And this is something that is like really grotesque for me when I'm DJing and like everybody's staring at me because it's so counter to what the dance culture was really about. So what happened though, legally though, was this kind of emergent interest coming from DJ culture that was looking into kind of critiquing the means of generating music and thinking about questioning authenticity and it was kind of drawing connections to music concrete and constructivism and things like this and then uh what happened was that there became like the lawsuits against sampling in the and that were mostly targeting hip-hop and of course in america this is like both like a, a class and a race issue going on by targeting these specific djs in that particular genre of music. But what was established then was that, oh, like a sample is still an authentic work, you know, of the original recording artist and the original writer, blah, blah, blah. So the legal establishment caught up with this kind of counter-authenticity movement in order to say, no, we have redefined authenticity to include these things. And so then we see from the early 90s onward that the development of sampler software, sample-based work, everything was going towards the idea of the DJ as artist, not the DJ as counterpoint to artist, 
or something that could be an antagonism with the artist. And then that also led to this emphasis on all the computer software and computer-generated audio synthesis stuff also being about the live performance, real-time sound generation, uh, how to bring these things into the live performance space. Well, people like me were interested in, in the idea of doing things that couldn't be integrated into a performance space, that were deliberately a rejection of the performance space. And, and if we were in a performance space, we were not the performers, the dancers were. You know what I mean? The people on the floor were. So that whole thing got lost by a legal structure that then put it back into everybody's mind that, okay, we have to make this about creativity, we have to make this about authenticity, we have to make this about the DJ as musician, rather than the things that me and many others were interested in about tearing the musician down to the level of the DJ. That momentum has been lost decades ago. And so, yeah, we ended up with the DJ as superstar and also like in, even in the ambient scene and stuff where groups like in England, like the Orb, who started out as kind of raves, come down room, anonymous kind of DJ culture things, turning into being on stage with a live drummer and bassist. It's absurd how it became this parody of rock and roll to the point that it's like, yeah, the industry is just putting out this dead corpse over and over and just making us fucking dance to it all the time. And it's just a nightmare, you know, it's, it's awful. It just stinks. So as someone that, you know, DJs regularly to, to earn a living, is that something you're conscious of? Do you try to undercut or challenge that notion of, you know, DJ being a sort of god? Well, you know, I mean, there's very little we can really do when you're being put into, even in other types of performances and things I do as well. You know, you're being flown into a situation where everything on the technical side is already predetermined. You're just being plugged into something that a million other DJs have been in that same booth before you and will be after you. You're just a temporary employee. It's really like I'm the least important thing about that moment. I'm aware of that when I step into it. It could be anybody in that booth. It really doesn't matter. And I know that from the experience side, people will disagree with me, whatever. But like from the structural side, the social side, the economic side, we are the least important thing of, of that. We are the thing that's gone the next day. We, we are not part of that institution, that, that venue, right? The bartender staff is more part of it and more regular and more present than we are. If you go into it knowing that, all the kind of hype stuff is just not, it's a non sequitur. It's not even in my mind, you know. And so I understand that I'm going into something where people are, um, you know, if you push the volume louder, they'll cheer. If you bring it down and build it back up, then they'll cheer again. It's, it's all fucking puppetry. <laughs> it's so stupid. If you get that, and, and also if you're just doing it, to survive economically and then using that money to generate these other projects that have the other content being able to be delivered in a somewhat more clear way, that's the best I can do. But it's also a complete failure and it's a complete no-win situation. So, You talked about in your early days of DJing, you know, playing this sort of down-tempo, you know, no vocals, sort of anti-club music in a sense. Is that something that you still do today? What What's the kind of weirdest song that you've played in a club recently? I mean, if you think of something like Mr. Fingers, Can You Feel It? It's like 114 BPM, 112, some, it's like slow, right? And it's weird that a song like Can You Feel such a legendary track, could be 
actually perceived by people in that moment, in that heyday, as what you just said. I loved how, how you just said it's like kind of like <laughs> anti-dance kind, kind of stuff. Then we're talking about like Mr. Fingers, you know what I mean? So it's like that because it wasn't uh, Lisa Stansfield. It wasn't Whitney Houston or whatever, you know. That's the other thing that we're up against is the, the mainstream expectations of what dance music should be. There's also, if you're dealing with drag clubs, there's the drag queen expectation of what music should be, which is also like can be tragically campy to the point of annoyance. There's a lot of bad music out there that it looks great when somebody's on stage lip syncing to it, but you don't want to listen <laughs> to that shit other times of the day. You know what I mean? All of these things are factors that make those scenarios also quite chaotic. Lately, I, I've made a, a series of kind of re-edits of some Pat Metheny stuff. And I've been also like kind of incorporating a lot more inconsistent tempo jazz things, classically jazz within the house sets and stuff. As someone who grew up in the U.S., you know, I think like the relationship between like soul and disco is quite different than the kind of European and U.K. kind of Boney M style when people think about disco and stuff like ABBA and Boney M and like for me that's like really like super soulless kind of disco of course I get it as as a club culture thing and also I'm you know of course I'm not somebody who's super into soul in the ethereal sense but I am very conditioned by and kind of um, have a sentimental touch for American soul and that American disco, American house. It's like, um, you know, like the difference between the New, the New York stuff versus like um, the British stuff, like um, Richie Rich and things like that, that were out at the same time, right? I mean, the <laughs> all the British stuff is like way overproduced. Like it's not, not overproduced in the quality sense, but just there's too many samples going on at the same time, right? So, oh, you might you, you might you might piss off a few uh, British supporter listeners right. with that. That's all right. I, I actually have the same problem. That's like the that whenever I listen to any of like the DJ Sprinkles remixes, I'm always like, oh god, why did I put so many like samples on each other on top of each? And I think that's also why people keep inviting me back to DJ in England is because my own tracks fall prey to the same problems that I'm complaining about. And maybe so maybe it's the thing like we dislike those in whom we see ourselves. Maybe that's what I'm speaking to right now. But, Too close. Um, <laughs> yeah. but there is, I think there is really a difference between like, I mean, I can spot it immediately if somebody's a European or British producer versus an American producer. It's just, you can hear it immediately. So I think like in terms of like, not just playing like disco stuff in between the house tracks, but also going into kind of like jazz stuff as well is also maybe some manifestation of that American aesthetic. I want to ask you about the sort of way that you release your work, right? You're very much in control of how you release things. You're kind of very clear about copyrights, formats. It's not on YouTube or on the sort of traditional streaming sites and all the rest of it. How do you manage that sort of practically um, being such an independent artist? You know, it appears that I'm exerting a lot of control, but actually, if you kind of read between the lines, it's all about a lack of control. And, and actually, the inability to have control in this current era of online distribution. It started out with, for me, with the nightmare of like when um, IFA, the kind of biggest electronic music distributor in Europe, went under in 2003. Some people uh, who bought the Mill Plateau record label name, um, but not the back catalog, 
they felt jilted that they didn't get control of the back catalog and then they uploaded without permission everything that they could get their hands on, including like all of my albums that had been released. And it took me six years to get those out of major online distribution with from like iTunes, Juno Download, eMusic, all the big players. Then by the time I got that done, then of course YouTube had picked up. And of course, there's also like... Um, file sharing stuff. After having those experiences with the major distributors and not trusting them at all and get of course getting no apologies and of course no financial it wasn't even it wouldn't be it wouldn't be worth my hiring a lawyer to go after the money cuz I'd just lose more. But um after losing the ability to work with those distributors that that I wish I could have to be honest, you know, my life would be quite different now if I was able to just comfortably work with online distribution platforms. But I was again like just kind of through experience forced into a situation where I had to make choices not to do that. And then now it's more about trying to keep things local and offline in this as much as possible just to resist the whole kind of corporate archiving that's just again not invested in any sort of social dimension of the work it's just about trying to get everything into an archive to just maximize the potential for clicks if somebody wanted something that it would be there to click through and then they could get ad revenues all those things are really about a lack of control and as a result of responding to that lack of control then i end up looking like some sort of like hyper controlling asshole and you know it's like but that's <laughs> That's not all on me. 50%, I'll take 50%, but, you know, <laughs> there's something else going on outside me. Well, I suppose then if, if you're, you know, if people are having to sort of buy uh, or kind of find your music through your website, through your channels, I guess it, the other side of that is it kind of creates more of a direct connection to you, perhaps. I think it does. You know, I think there is a difference. It's unfortunate that, you know, in the end, we're still talking about the most functional way to get hold of it is a consumer exchange, you know, under capitalism. I mean, this sucks that this is like kind of the best way to do it. But it's true that like when people buy something from me and then I say, hey, by the way, you know, thanks for your order. But by the way, please don't upload things. And if you want to know more about why, you can read this, and it's not just about copyright stuff. There's other social stuff behind it. Blah, blah, blah. And then I think that that does create a different... It doesn't mean that they're not going to upload it anyway, but but it does... I think it does change the odds of that happening because they've had an interaction that is different from just going to some online distributor and clicking and downloading, you know? I do think even even though I'm very grateful for things like the distribution through Boomcat in the UK and stuff, and I have some distribution through some record shops in Japan as well. I think when people, and Boomcat has also been very kind to put on their website that they support my uh, attempts to keep things offline and stuff, but I think the scope of their mail order is so much larger than mine. That, again, that, that does introduce new risks and stuff too that are that are quite different from the much smaller, lower sales that direct sales through my website that I do personally. And I think that all those things do have a factor in, yeah, changing the consumer relationship a little bit, not in a way, not in like, oh, it's like making capitalism great. I mean, no, it's a nightmare no matter what. But, but I mean, but it does make it so that people, they have to wait, you know, they have to wait for things to be shipped from Japan. They can't just pay and download. They have to, I have to bring it to the, I have to pack it up. I have to bring it to the post office a couple weeks later they'll get it and stuff like that. And so it is a completely different 
process. And I think that that does also kind of um, make people treat it a little bit more careful. But it can also bring out the punk side of people as well in terms of like, oh, you told me not to upload this? Well, screw you, you know? Like, like I become the institution <laughs> that then they're rejecting, right? You know, go, going against. So I get the whole punk thing of going against, it, deliberately going against my requests to keep things out of YouTube and stuff like that, too. I, I get it. I was a punky kid. But yeah, hopefully at some point people also kind of can see that that my desire to keep things offline is not about property control. It's about um, drawing attention to the lack of social specificity and context that all gets erased when you rely on these corporate populist platforms that are absolutely demonstrating their willingness to censor people, censor people on the left, censor people on the bottom. And, you know, if you feel that that's the site where your revolution is going to happen, you're just sadly mistaken, you know. So is it possible to find other means of distribution and exchange? Um, very limited options, you know. Like I said, it still comes down to a commercial exchange through my website. I mean, that's bullshit. But, yeah, that's how screwed we are, you know. It's obvious that you go to a lot of effort to challenge some of these oppressive, you know, systems and, and structures in contemporary society. Do you feel like music is an effective way of trying to counter some of those systems and structures? No, I'm, I work in audio because it's the worst format for it. it. It's like the most difficult arena or medium to actually generate analyses with political intent, you know? Everybody's idea of music changing the world is something about, like, like the lyrics in a folk song or the lyrics in a hip-hop song. or the It's all about the lyrics, the lyrics, the lyrics, right? At no point do people think about the politics of constructing sound and how sound functions in society. It's all about what I think is a superficial, poetic level. I do understand poetry can be a powerful form of analysis, but... It also is inherently abstract to the point of misinterpretation. And I think that in terms of thinking about sonic uses for sound within social organizing, we're left with very few examples. I mean, Ultra Red is one group that's really invested time into trying to demonstrate how sound can be used as an aspect of social organizing. But like I said, I've actually came to, to audio to kind of demonstrate all of these kinds of critiques of authenticity, authorship, creativity that people in the fine arts are totally aware of. Things like Warhol, going back further, constructivism and all that stuff. That basically it's like, imagine if you have Andy Warhol doing these prints of corporate logos and things like this as a kind of gesture against originality, presenting something that is completely unoriginal, right? And this was like a kind of real middle finger to the kind of expressionist painter scene and stuff. Now you have the Warhol Foundation. They'll sue you for printing an Andy Warhol print without permission, which is a print of a logo or a newspaper article or something that he printed without permission, right? So the art industry knows these critiques, yet it insists upon business as usual. So, like I said, I originally went to New York to study painting, and I got interested in those kinds of critiques, but I realized that the arts were a place where everybody knew these things, and they just refused to take action on them. And at the same time, 
I noticed that those same people who are completely aware of these critiques and, and actually kind of performatively invested in these critiques of creativity and authenticity in the visual arts, when it comes to music, were still totally seduced by something like, let's say, the authenticity of the blues musician. And I think there is something about also culturally and a kind of class thing going on between the fine arts as a kind of hot couture thing and also music as a kind of populist thing. And so the propagandistic functions of music in society are much more on that kind of low cultural vibe that we just naturalize and internalize without and so that it all feels natural and it all feels like it's about vibes that the politics are not really present in that moment of hearing, you know, we don't, we've become numb to those politics, to hearing those politics, to hearing the ways that our interpretations are structured socially, to be drawn towards certain audio and rejecting others. You know, that's how I ended up in music, to just basically perform those same critiques that failed in the visual arts, not because I have any hope of audio being able to do those things, but just it's like an even, it's an even more tragically compromised social format. So that's how that's how I ended up here. Yeah. So on on that note, and just to and just to wrap up, what are the projects that you're working on at the moment? What have you got coming up? I'm kind of in a weird position because um, the means of distribution and listening and everything have changed so much, and I end up spending so much time interacting with kind of the wrong people in terms of like, like I interact way more with people who upload my stuff than interacting with the people who actually kind of appreciate it on the terms that I ask and, and that I would like. And also like in terms of like the themes around gender and sexuality, transgenderism and queerness and stuff, my take on those issues also is kind of really out of political favor. And I don't really, it's been a struggle to figure out how to kind of address this moment with any sort of clarity. And so I've been kind of trying to work on writing and that aspect of things lately to kind of get my butt going again. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, it's, it's, I'm in a weird moment. I still have things happening and stuff. Like, I mean, like there's, I have a kind of retrospective gallery exhibit happening in Lunaburg from uh, May 11th through June, either June or July 2nd. Um, and that was uh, an exhibition called Reframe Positions that had also been shown for a couple months in Australia previously in Melbourne. I have things like that going on, DJing and performing and stuff. But yeah, in terms of studio production and writing, it's really been difficult because I just get so depressed and I don't, I, I just end up stopping in the middle of things. And so something will come out in the other, I'm just constipated at the moment. So. <laughs> Creatively constipated, yeah, constipated. and we all, we all, we all, we all get there. We all get there every now and then. What do you do to relieve yourself of creative uh, constipation? I mean, that's the dilemma, right? I mean, you know, it's all, oh god, it's all shit anyway. But it's just like, yeah, I don't know. What what are the what are the kind of social diuretics? What are they? If only we knew, we could make we could make millions. <laughs> We've talked about the ways in which some of the spaces in which people engage with your music are, are flawed. And I'm just, I'm curious, you know, for you, what would be the ideal space or context for someone to, to, to listen to your music? Well, again, I'm a nihilist and a realist. And so um, the question of ideal situations and scenarios, I, I don't waste my time thinking about them. You know, I, I would rather put that effort and energy into analyzing 
um, what is happening on a real social material level rather than creating fantasies in my mind and then attempting to um, subject people to my own whims. You know, it's that that's that's the that's my whole rejection of contemporary politics in a nutshell right there. You know, I mean, like historical materialism is what I'm all about. And yeah, focusing on the material, not focusing on dreams, not focusing on where I, out of my traumas, what I envision to be a better future. I mean, enslaving the future to the, to the traumas of the past is just like uh, one more way to keep people from ever seeing what's actually happening on the material level. Okay, no, no ideals. No ideals. <laughs> Absolutely none. Thanks for listening to Don't Assume. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can like and subscribe on your podcast app. This is an NTS podcast produced by Lizzie King, edited by May Lee Evans, and with sound recording by Josh Farmer and Sigourney Watson. This podcast was made possible thanks to NTS supporters. Become a supporter today for access to additional podcast content, live track lists, access to a supporter-only Discord and newsletter, and a shop discount. 50% of supporter proceeds go direct to NTS resident DJs. Find out more at nts.live slash supporters. Yes. Uh.